Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking with Mike Robbins. Mike is an author, coach and sought after international keynote speaker who teaches people how to infuse their lives and businesses with authenticity and appreciation. He's given not one, not two, but three TED Talk presentations and yeah, anyone who watches this knows I'm obsessed with TED Talk. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, right, we need to get this guy in the show and uh, is the author of the books, Nothing Changes Until You Do. Focus on the good stuff and be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Uh, he's been featured on ABC News, the Oprah Radio, uh, Radio Network, Forbes, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and loads more. So it is absolutely incredible to have you here today, Mike. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, taking things back a bit, you were a professional baseball player. Um, you were... Uh, I think you you were you were asked for like the New York Yankees, and then you said no. We're going to go to Stanford and like do college at Stanford Uni. But then um, you played pro ball for about three years. But suddenly, like a, an injury, suddenly like instant injury, ended your career like that. Yeah. But this whole experience, I mean, I know that actually looking back, you've actually found that that sort of experience you found it taught you something about appreciation, didn't it? It did. You know, I mean, I started playing baseball when I was seven. You know, here in the U.S., baseball is a pretty big deal, right? It's kind of like cricket or football out where you live. Um, and, you know, that's what I wanted to do, and I was good at it. So, you know, I did get drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees, didn't sign with the Yankees because I got a chance to go to college and play at Stanford and then got drafted by the Kansas City Royals and signed a pro contract. And, you know, in baseball, you, have, you get drafted by a major league team. You have to go into the minor leagues and try to work your way up. Unfortunately for me, I got injured when I was still in the minor leagues, so I was 23 and my career ended. And as I've spoken and written about a lot over the last number of years, there were many lessons from that, but probably the most significant one was realizing that I hadn't fully appreciated it while it was happening. You know, I, when I look back on it, I realized, oh, the only regret that I had was that I would have enjoyed it and appreciated it more. You know, it wasn't really until I was even done playing that I could actually honestly say without any ego or arrogance, like, you know, I was pretty good at that. I, I probably should have had more fun. <laughs> But it ended up being a painful way to learn a really important lesson, and that's become a big part of my work. My very first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, is all about appreciation, and a lot of what I end up speaking about and teaching about is how can we appreciate our lives right now as they are instead of thinking, i got to make more money or lose some weight or fall in love or buy a new house or whatever we think we need to do, because oftentimes, and almost everyone's had this experience, not necessarily like me with a sports injury, but something bad happens and then we stop and reflect and go wow you know what life was pretty good I just wasn't paying attention to it and now this challenging thing is going on I look back and go I should have enjoyed that more mm, absolutely yeah I think like you said like maybe not within the sports context but everyone can relate or resonate with that in some way in their life yeah there was, um, there was a really funny story which um which which you were talking about is um with baseball when especially you know the pitcher which is the position you were when you're when you're up on the mound yes if you have a bad game it's, it's, it's a pretty it's pretty public isn't it it's terrible you know i mean i tell this story as an example often when i speak because you know again whether anybody some people watching us have no you know awareness of how baseball works and the rules some may you know either way but a pitcher which is the position that I play what happens when you have a bad game is the manager literally stops the game and comes out to the mound in the middle of the field and takes the ball out of your hand and makes you leave and then someone comes in and replaces you it's pretty embarrassing right and I mean often when I'm speaking like to a corporate audience I'll say to everybody imagine you're at work tomorrow 
and you like make a mistake, like kind of a big one, you know, and your boss comes in and goes, hey, you, come over here, and you have to stop in the middle of what you're doing and leave, and some other person literally sits down in your chair and starts doing your job for you. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, it was really humbling and, and embarrassing when that would happen, but the, the good news about that experience, having that happen to me a lot as a young man, um, now in life, if I'm up speaking or I'm doing things, you know, I always think to myself, if it goes really bad, it's never going to be that bad where someone's going to stop and replace me in the middle of it. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was actually a really good lesson to learn. I have to say, playing sports and everything that I learned, especially some of the failures and the challenges, taught me a lot about life and how to be resilient, you know, in the face of, of things not going exactly the way I want them to. Mm. And you, you talk about one of the difference. Um, you talk about, obviously the importance of appreciation, but what, what's the difference between recognition and appreciation? Yeah, that's an important distinction. It's a simple one, but it's, it's really profound when we start to think about it. So recognition is about what people do, performance, right? You think of it in the work context, you know, a, a manager or a boss would recognize someone for doing a good job. You think about it in your life, you know, with your spouse or your friends, or hey, thanks for doing that. Hey, thanks for taking out the trash. Thanks for you know, washing the car. I mean, again, your kids, you know, and, and recognition is important. We want to thank people and acknowledge people for doing a good job, doing what we want them to do. You get good service in a restaurant. You thank you to the, the person who served you. Appreciation, on the other hand, though, is about people's value. It's about who they are, not so much what they do. So it's really about recognizing people's inherent value, not simply based on performance or behavior or something that they've done. And one way that I like to describe it is there, there's a great story that Oprah Winfrey tells, and I've heard her tell this story before, and she says, you know, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people in my career. I've interviewed everybody, right? Presidents and prime ministers, and I've interviewed famous people and celebrities, people who've done extraordinary things. I've interviewed people who've gone through tragedy and everyday people. And she said, you know, after almost every interview I've ever conducted over all these years, after the interview ends, almost everyone asks me some version of the same question. She said, you know, the camera shuts off, the interview's over, they lean over and they say, how was that? How'd I do, right? And she said, you know, early in her career, she said, I, I was kind of confused by this because I'd be sitting across from someone who's very successful, very accomplished, and I'd wonder, why do they need my validation? Like, don't they know they're good and, you know, aren't they confident? And then she said, I realized they weren't actually asking for my, for my validation. What they were actually asking was, did you see me? Did you hear me? Did what I say matter? And she said, and I agree with her, that everybody's essentially asking those questions. No matter how confident or successful or accomplished someone is, we're asking those questions sort of unconsciously of one another. And being able to appreciate people is letting them know directly or even just sort of indirectly, yes, I see you, yes, I hear you, yes, what you say and who you are matter to me. And it's, it's subtle, but it's profound. And when we think about our relationships, we think about the people we want to empower if we separate out recognition and appreciation, we can appreciate people all the time, mm -hmm. even if we don't necessarily like them, even if they're not doing exactly what we want them to do, and then recognize them when they do something worthy of recognition, but those things stay separate. Being able to acknowledge people for who they are, not simply what they do. And it's that, it's that distinction, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, again, it's subtle, but it's profound if we can really think about this in our relationships and even in our relationship with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because so often we will value ourselves if we do something good, right? I'll appreciate myself if I accomplish something, if I produce some result, if, again, 
if I'm a certain weight, if I have a certain amount of money in the bank, if I, you know, have a certain relationship, live in a certain place, whatever it is, it's very conditional. And the challenge in life, it's not that we don't want to have standards for ourselves and others. Absolutely not. We do, but in a healthy way. We also want to make sure that we're nurturing ourselves and other people, and appreciation is a key piece to that. Yeah. Uh, There's a fascinating study um, by the uh, Department of Labor uh, in the U.S. about why people left their jobs. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, this was a study from a while back. When I first got into doing this work, I found this fascinating. And they asked people who left their jobs. This was in the United States a few years back, and they, you know, voluntarily left. They weren't fired or laid off. It was, you know, they chose to leave. And they asked them, why did you leave? And the number one reason, 64% of the people in the survey said, I left because I didn't feel valued or appreciated. It was more important than how much money they made. It was more important than their title or their role or their responsibility. And I often say, again, when I'm speaking to business leaders, I'll say, look, people don't quit their job. They quit their boss. So if you're a boss, like I was speaking at an event yesterday to a bunch of leaders, I said, look, if your relationship isn't strong with the people on your team, they're more likely to leave. And it has less to do with how the company's doing and even how they're doing personally. It has a lot to do with that relationship and how valued they feel. Yeah, and what are these sort of two main keys for creating this environment in which people really thrive? I mean, you talk about high expectation and yep. high nurturance. Yeah. What, what do they mean? Like, how does that, yeah, how does that you, affect? You've definitely watched my TED Talks. I, I mean, I've been, I've been, I've, I was there. I had my notes. I had my notepad. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I, was doing, I was doing some digging. <laughs> yeah, so really, I mean, what it takes to have people thrive in general, but again, we think about environments at home, at work with a business that we're running, what we want to do is have a high, healthy high bar of expectation for ourselves, for others. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. That doesn't mean like uber crazy pressure that we can't make mistakes, which many of us, myself included, sometimes fall into that category, but healthy high bar. So we expect a lot of ourselves, of each other. We challenge one another. And at the same time, the other element is a high level of nurturance at the same time. High expectation, high nurturance. And most of us, if we think about it, we tend to fall kind of on one side of that spectrum or the other. Now, maybe sometimes we're on the high bar side and then we're on the nurturance side. You know, it could be the same person, but it just depends on our mood or what's going on. But what you want to do is have both of those simultaneously. Again, so the expectation is high. You know, let's say if you're coaching me or you're working with me or you're mentoring me, I want you to challenge me. I want you to expect a lot from me. I want you to push me. But at the same time, I want to know you have my back. You care about me. You appreciate me, not just based on what I do, but who I am. I have the space to be myself, to be real, to be vulnerable, to ask for help, to say, you know what, this is hard, this is scary, or I screwed this up, or whatever, and you're not going to come and reprimand me for that. You're going to show up and say, okay, man, how can I help you? So it's really creating that kind of environment. And this is a lot of when I work with businesses, I'm trying to help them create that kind of environment internally. Because sometimes, again, we drive so hard we burn ourselves out. And we all know this in whatever we do. And then other times we can be so nurturing and so kind and so compassionate with ourselves almost to a fault where we're not really pushing ourselves to grow, to change, to evolve, to kind of go to that next level. So you want to find sort of that happy balance where both of those things are high. Yeah, absolutely. I can see when when you're saying that, I mean, I I was thinking back personally, like, I can definitely see times when I've been either like far too much on one side or far too much on the other side and actually neglecting one or the other. So that's the key, having exactly. them both at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, think of it almost as like head and heart or yin and yang, right? It's like we need to have both of those things happening simultaneously for us to really grow, to move forward, and you know, to evolve the way that we want to. Yeah. And talk on, still on appreciation, like, 
if, if we're suddenly, you know, okay, appreciation we, we, is clearly, you know, so important. Like, how can we start expressing our appreciation for other people more effectively? I mean, you talked about some of the ways, um, like, are, are there like two or three, like, key ways which are just, which we can start maybe today actually doing that and helping people more? Well, one of the, uh, one of the things we got to do is, is, first of all, pay attention to how we relate to ourselves. Because how we relate to other people is fundamentally related to how we relate to ourselves. Part of why we're not often as appreciative towards others is because we're really critical of ourselves. So I'm a big believer of, is the idea that we don't see other people as they are, we see them as we are. So the more we can nurture a sense of appreciation for ourselves or about life in general, things like keeping a gratitude journal, which Oprah's been talking about for years, many people have talked about, but writing things down, you know, sitting in, I'm sitting here in my office looking out the window and going, wow, look, it's beautiful. I'm grateful to live where I live in California, you know, taking inventory because gratitude is really not an attitude as much as it is a practice. So just like we exercise our bodies, we got to ritualize some kind of gratitude or appreciation practice for ourselves. Maybe it's in prayer or meditation. Maybe it's in a journal. We sit around at my house with my wife and my girls and we play the gratitude game where we talk about things we're grateful for. So those things, as simple and sometimes even corny as they seem, they make us more open and available to see the things that we appreciate. With other people, another thing that we can start to do is really be on the lookout for it. You know, especially in certain situations, when we're around people that bug us, when we're maybe we're around our family or our in-laws or certain people that we don't particularly like, right? Or maybe like I travel a bit for the work I do. I go to the airport. It's easy to get annoyed at the airport, right? I try to play a game with myself when I'm in those situations. What can I find that I appreciate? What can I find to celebrate? What can I find to acknowledge? Because otherwise, then I become a victim of the circumstance. And then I get, oh, you know, I'm at the airport. Oh, I'm around that person who bugs me. And then we give our power away. Yeah. And the victim. third thing that we can do to practice is start giving. And sometimes it can feel a little uncomfortable based on our personality or others or when's the right moment or what do I say or I don't want to be too you know, emotional or whatever. But just start practicing giving out more appreciation. And what you'll find is people often have a hard time receiving it. So what we can all do as a practice, a very simple but important practice is start receiving appreciation from other people more graciously. And this is something that many of us, and you know this being in the UK and out in Europe especially, but it's true here in the US, we get all weird and bashful and funny about, oh, no, 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 and you know, people give us a compliment or express some appreciation, and we do one of two very weird and insincere things. We either discount it or blow it off or make some self-deprecating joke about ourselves, right? Or even worse is that we'll like give a phony compliment right back to them because we feel like we're supposed to, which is completely inauthentic. So what we really want to start to do is practice just receiving a compliment, an expression of appreciation like a gift, like a present and say, thank you. Even and especially if we don't agree with them. You know, when someone will express some appreciation to me and I don't necessarily agree, I've trained myself now. I don't interrupt them. I don't discount it. I don't argue with them. I don't, I'll often, and sometimes it's hard because I may think, what are they talking about? But I'll just receive it. I say thanks, and if they do it in person, I'll you know walk away. Or if I get an email or something, I'll, I'll reflect on. It. I'll think, wow, that's interesting. I don't think that about myself, at least not right now. Maybe I should, because that's a better opinion than the one that I currently have. And that's part of the thing about appreciation is fundamentally it is subjective, mm. right? You and I will appreciate different things because different things are important to us. You know, it's like looking at art. We could argue, is that good art? Is that bad art? There's really no such thing. It's just I might appreciate and go, wow, I really think that's beautiful. I put that picture up in my office and you might go, no, oh, that's ugly. I would never put that up. 
but it's not inherently one or the other. It's simply just what do we appreciate? And what I think is really interesting, you actually, um, if you, by, by saying, oh, no, no, like discounting it, you're actually doing them a disservice, aren't you? Because it's now really? scientifically proven that when one, somebody expresses kindness to another person and it's received, the yep. serotonin levels in both people's brains increases. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So if you sort of discount it, then you're, you're... So the serotonin goes up when we express appreciation or kindness for another and it's received. I mean, just think about this in life. You give a compliment. You offer some help. Right. And people get, oh, no, 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 no. Right. And all of a sudden it, it interrupts this virtuous cycle because we want to help. We want to give. We want to share. We want that to be received. I mean, again, think of the present analogy. You have a present for someone, a gift for someone on their birthday or for the holidays. And, aren't, you know, you get a really good gift. You're so excited. My wife just got a gift for a friend of ours. We stayed at their cabin um, over the a holiday weekend that we had here in the U.S. And uh they live by a lake, and it's really and it's this cute sort of old rustic cabin. And my wife found this sign <clears throat> that says "On Lake Time" because we were like running late and everything was going really slow, and the whole town is kind of this sleepy little town. And it looks just like the cabin. And my M Michelle, my wife, was so excited to find it. She's like, "Oh, I'm going to give this to Katie for her birthday, right?" And that's great when you find a really great, unique gift. I mean, it's not some fancy thing, but she knows Katie will probably love it. But imagine if Michelle gives that gift to Katie. And Katie gets all weird about, oh, no, no, you shouldn't have gotten this for me. Oh, no, we don't have any space in the cabin. Or, you know, all of a sudden, Michelle's excitement about the gift would now be interrupted. And then it would be this, oh, and then if Katie felt awkward, oh, I got to get you a gift back or, you know. And again, it's a simple little gift. But we do that kind of stuff. And then it breaks that cycle. And as you mentioned, they have scientifically proven that acts of kindness, acts of appreciation, expressions, when they're received, raises the serotonin in both people's brains. Even if someone just witnesses it, it's, it's why when you watch something, right, you watch some movie or you see some video online of someone doing something kind for another, you will sometimes get moved, even moved to tears. It has nothing to do with you, right? <laughs> it's just some baby doing some cat or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, that's so sweet. You start to cry because it actually has an, an emotional impact on you. And so if you think about this in the environment, and again, I say this a lot when I'm working with organizations and teams and companies, I say, look, this one little thing, you start making it easier to give and receive appreciation. We start receiving compliments from other people more graciously. It can literally change the culture of a team or of a family because now this really simple, beautiful gift that we give gets received and all of a sudden it benefits not just the people that are receiving it, but everybody. That's awesome. I love that. And another key theme or topic which you, you, you've written a book on it and you talk a lot about is authenticity and so I mean yeah. I definitely want to just briefly touch on that because it's, it's such yeah such a great uh, such a great topic um, and one of the things which I heard you described it which was interesting was this idea of so you've got phony on one side of the scale you've yep. got honesty over here somewhere could you yes. describe that and then about authenticity yep. and how it all fits in so basically yeah I mean I wrote this book Be Yourself Everyone Else Has Already Taken which is all about authenticity so I've been really looking at and studying and talking about and teaching about authenticity for a number of years. And I talk about authenticity on a continuum, right? On one side, as you mentioned, is phony, inauthentic. We all kind of know what that's like. We all find ourselves in those situations from time to time. We also find ourselves interacting with people who are, you know, being inauthentic with us. I mean, even just think about like customer service, right? You're somewhere and then they're supposed to say something when you leave the store and you can tell it's like part of a script or you're walking off the airplane and they say, thank you, thank you, thank you, have a good day, you know, and it's just like this phony, it's not inherently evil it just doesn't feel good it's not real and if you have people in your life where you interact with it professionally or personally 
and it doesn't feel like they're really being genuine or real with you, hard to trust them, hard to connect, right? And we all know, again, there are times in life we find ourselves being inauthentic. And usually it's not malicious. It's not like we wake up in the morning and say, <laughs> I'm going to lie to everybody, right? I'm going to deceive people. No, it's usually like I'm nervous or I'm busy or you know, I feel awkward. I don't know that person that well or I want them to think that I'm cool and smart and whatever. So, But most of us realize like, if I'm going to have some freedom in my own life, if I'm going to have some impact on other people, if I'm, people are going to trust me, I can't really operate from that inauthentic place and, and expect to have really quality relationships, right? So you move along the continuum. Halfway down the continuum is honest. Now, honest is good, right? I mean, it's better than phony. And, and most people were taught, like my mother used to say to me all the time, honesty is the best policy, right? Okay. And I agree with that. That's true. Honesty is the best policy. But, but I often will ask people when I'm talking about this, how many people have ever had the experience where they were honest about something and it caused a problem, <laughs> Right. Like it made something worse, like it, it damaged a relationship, it made us look bad, it hurt someone's feelings, it upset something, or we said something we weren't supposed to say, oh, ooh. and then we all learn in different ways how to massage the truth. So we kind of hang out on this side of the continuum, say, okay, I'm not going to be phony, inauthentic, I'm going to be honest, but like politically correct honest, <laughs> you know, like makes, makes me look good honest, doesn't have people, you know, get too upset with me, whatever. And then what ends up happening is we hang out on this side of the continuum and there's just, it's not bad, wrong, evil. It's just, there's not a lot of freedom there. We have to constant, I have to constantly remember, how honest can I be with you? And what am I supposed to say here? And how am I supposed to act there? And where there's real freedom and power is on the other side of honesty, on the far side of the continuum. That's where authenticity lies. But to get there, what you have to do is remove something from your honesty and add something to it. You have to remove your self-righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that most of us, myself included, have lots of opinions and we think our opinions are right. And they're not. And we're entitled to our opinion. We can have as many passionate opinions as we want. They're just not right. Most of the time in life, it's not like things are black and white, correct, incorrect. Even though sometimes we think that way. It's my perspective, my opinion, my perception versus yours. And if we happen to agree, great. We'll be friends. We'll get along, right? But if we happen to disagree... And then all of a sudden, I get really fixed in my position. Now I'm righteous. And if I'm right about something and you don't agree with me, what does that make you? <laughs> Wrong, right? <laughs> now we got a problem. And I'm, I don't know exactly how it is in the UK or where you are in Europe, but I know here in the US, just take politics, for example. We're terrible about this, right? It becomes this thing like we're on this side or that side. And in certain issues, it becomes like, I can't listen to you. Right. I mean, we had this big Supreme Court ruling just a few, you know, not that long ago here in the U.S. where they legalized gay marriage and it was a big deal. And the hashtag on social media was hashtag love wins. Right. That's what people were saying. And while I may politically agree with that, which I do, what I then said, I spoke actually two days after the Supreme Court ruling to a group here where I live in California, which is very sort of liberal, open minded, progressive. And most people around here very positive about the Supreme Court ruling. Right. You go to different parts of the country not so positive about it. But I said to everybody, look, if we're all going to cheer and say, yay, love wins, love really wins when we can love people who we disagree with. Right? Do we just, do we say love wins because we won and our opinion got prevailed? And, you know, we may feel strongly and passionately about it from a human rights perspective, from a civil rights perspective, and that's all well and good. But can we actually accept people and appreciate people who don't agree with us. And that's challenging for all of us. But righteousness ends up separating us from other people. So we got to be mindful. Sometimes people think authenticity is about speaking up. And it is. 
But if I speak up with self-righteousness, it's maybe honest. It's not authentic in the way that I understand authenticity because it's going to separate me from you or anybody who I might disagree with, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's honesty without self-righteousness. And then the thing we got to add to it, which is even trickier than figuring out our own self-righteousness, which is tricky enough, is we add vulnerability. And vulnerability is a funny thing because it's, it's super important. It's fundamental to relationships, to connection, to our own growth, to our own ability to try new things, to be creative. But we get really uncomfortable with vulnerability because it makes us exposed and we could potentially get hurt. That's part of why we don't like being vulnerable, so we protect ourselves. That's why we act cool. That's why we you know, massage the truth. So honesty without self-righteousness and with vulnerability is authenticity. And that takes an enormous amount of self-awareness and courage to be able to operate, to live, to work, to interact with people from that place. And that's why authenticity, while we all understand it, is actually a lot more complex than we often think of it on the surface. Mm. I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned Brené uh, Brown. Uh, you can't yes. get the courage without walking through vulnerability. Exactly. And Brené Brown, who you know, you know, she's a, a great you know, professor, researcher from the University of Houston, has been studying these emotions for many, many years. And what her work has taught me and so many of us is the, the importance, the value, the power of vulnerability. That it's not actually weakness. It's really strength. It's courage. And it's essential. Right? If we're going to build trust with people, if we're going to create anything new, if we're going to try anything different, if we're going to take any risks, we got to be willing to walk through that vulnerable place. Right? I mean, think about relationships. You can't fall in love and be in a relationship with someone without being willing to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when my wife Michelle and I met almost 15 years ago, and we dated and lived together for a few years, and we were going to, you know, talking about getting married, and I was excited. I wanted to marry her, but I was really scared. You know, my parents had gotten divorced when I was really young. Her parents had gotten divorced and I was just, I wasn't sure. Could I do it? Was I up for it? Could I make a marriage work? What if we had kids? Could I be a father? You know, I mean, just a lot of fears. And what was interesting, I had a mentor of mine that I was working with at the time. He was coaching me and counseling me and he said, look, Mike, when you fall in love with somebody, at first there's a lot of fears and doubts and insecurities, right? It's normal. You you know, how's it going? And then as you get closer and closer, a lot of those fears and those doubts and those insecurities start to melt away. But there's one fear, he said, that doesn't go away. In fact, it only gets bigger. It gets stronger. It gets more intense. He said, that's the fear of loss. Because the more you love someone or something, anything, the more, the more you could potentially get hurt if it goes away. Right? And he said, and that is actually why most people end up sabotaging their relationships because they can't deal with that vulnerability. He said, and the only way around it, there's no really way around it, is you got to lean into it. You just breathe you feel that fear and you keep loving anyway. And something about him saying that to me just made me feel like I wasn't so crazy and I could work through some of those fears and doubts and insecurities and it helped me have enough courage to actually ask Michelle to marry me, which we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary a few months ago. You know, but I think about that because it doesn't go away. It doesn't. I mean, now Michelle and I got two girls, Samantha's nine and Rosie's almost seven. And like, they're my life, right? I mean, there's a level of vulnerability that it just exists in the world, right? For all of us, whether we have children or not, whatever we're doing, it's like, we don't know what's going to happen next week, next month, next year, but we act like we do. And when we stop to really think about it, that's why, when, again, something really tragic or terrible happens, it's both really scary in one hand, you go, oh, wow, life is uncertain. But there's a part of it that's actually really liberating because I think it reminds all of us, hey, you know what? This whole thing is temporary. Like, 
let's pay a little more attention to what matters and what's going on. Not get so stressed out about, you know, our phone stopped working or we're stuck in traffic or whatever stupid thing we get ourselves all stressed out about. You know, the internet goes down or whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I mean, it's, that, that was really, really interesting, that idea of just, you know, just, just, just lean into the fear. I mean, it's, the more you love something or love someone, it's just, yeah, it's just going to get bigger. So just, just lean into it. Yeah. And what if, what if the sign of a great life was really having many, many things that we love so much that we experienced an enormous amount of vulnerability all the time because those things were so important, right? Or we were taking such big risks. You know, one of the things for me, back to my baseball career, when I got done playing baseball, and then I, for a couple of years I worked for a few internet companies in the late 90s here in the San Francisco Silicon Valley area where I live. And it was interesting, you know, but I was really kind of processing through like this whole dream of mine had ended from playing baseball and I was recovering physically from the injury but also more mentally, emotionally, what am I going to do with my life? But one of the things that I missed when baseball was over, I missed the fear. I missed the intensity of it, the risk of it. I, I'd go out on the mound and, you know, I, we talked about it earlier that the manager would come pull you out if you messed up. But it was fun, even though sometimes it sucked, to take that risk. And I was in my job, you know, selling internet advertising, working for this company. And it, it, it didn't feel risky enough to me personally. Like, I was bored. And when I started speaking and coaching and doing the work that I do now, getting up on stage in front of a group of people, especially at first, terrified me, Right. <laughs> But I loved it because I was like, this is a fun game to play. This is risky. This is going to cause me to have to be courageous. And I wouldn't have said it this way then, but it was challenging me to continue to be vulnerable. And it's one of the things that I love most about my work. And when I find myself, actually just last week, I was contemplating and writing in my journal and thinking, you know, I'm feeling a little bored right now. That was my reflection on what's going on. And I'm busy. I got lots going on. But I was like, oh, I think I'm bored because yeah, I'm doing lots of stuff and it's cool, but there's not a lot of stuff I'm doing that I'm actually pushing the limit. And again, that's where we grow, yeah. right? We all have different personalities and different levels of risk tolerance, so to speak, but we grow on the edge. We grow in our sort of, you know, outside of our comfort zone. And that's just, you know, how life works. And then we get to choose how much we want to do that or not. But I think if you're going to play the game of life, might as well play it all the way out, right? I love that. <laughs> what, what does the phrase, what's the power of this exercise? Asking yourself the question, if you really knew me, you'd know that dot, dot, dot. Can, can you describe right. a couple of them, maybe an example of how that's been used? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is an exercise I learned years ago from some mentors of mine. They actually had developed um, a beautiful program that they um, do here in the U.S. And, and in Europe and around the world called Challenge Day. It's for young people. It's for middle school, high school kids. And it's an exercise. Um, and so I took it and sort of adapted it for myself and in my own work. But basically, the idea is that the iceberg is what we use as a metaphor when we're talking about authenticity, right? And that if you lower the waterline on the iceberg, so to speak, you expose more of yourself. So the way the exercise will work is you can do it one-on-one -on -one in a pair, two people, in a group of people. Um, but each person, when it's your turn, you just repeat the phrase, if you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And, and as I, you know, you don't have to say anything you don't want to, but it's like, if you really knew what was going on inside my mind and my heart right now, this is what's going on. And so it's an opportunity for people to get real, to share a little bit more about what's going on. Like just, you know, later today, I'll actually be doing a session with a group of people um, inside of a company and we'll sit around the table and it's just a small group, but we'll go around the table and do that exercise. And there's no, 
specific thing anyone again is supposed to say, but it's really an opportunity for people to get real. And what I've seen over the years for myself, Michelle and I will do this sometimes with each other just as a way to check in. Like we obviously really know each other, right? But it's like, hey, babe, if you really knew me right now, and then just a few minutes for me to just kind of lower that waterline and really check in and let her know, here's how I'm feeling, here's what's going on for me right now. And she, her job isn't to fix it or change it or give me feedback about it, it's just really to listen to me. But the idea ultimately is, and I've seen this happen again in a work context or with couples or people that people just kind of let down their guard a little bit. And what happens is it liberates us when we can express more vulnerably, authentically what's going on for us. But it also gives other people permission to do the same. And here's the thing. Doing this kind of work and using this particular exercise for the last decade or so, I travel all over the world and work with all different types of people. The stuff that people end up expressing that's down below their waterline it's pretty much the same wherever I go, right? It's hopes and dreams and fears and doubts and worries and insecurities and pain and joy. And I mean, it's just life. It's human emotion stuff, right? It's whatever we're all dealing with. And what's amazing is almost always when we debrief and talk about it afterwards, I'll say to people, how many of you could relate to what other people were saying? And everybody raises their hand, right? And I'm like, well, because you know why that is? Because the further down below that waterline on the iceberg we go, the more similar we are, right? And we're all doing whatever we're doing to act like we got it together. You know, I sit here in my office and put on my nice shirt, <laughs> which, by the way, I have my underwear on under here, right? That's it. I mean, but we're trying to per- portray a certain thing we want people to believe, right? We post on Facebook, look how great I am. When in reality, right, you think about this even in, in social media, when someone posts something vulnerable, not necessarily whining and complaining, but vulnerable, you notice how easy it is to relate to and respond to and connect with? Oftentimes, again, when someone posts something really wonderful, like, hey, look, I'm in the Bahamas. Aren't I great? Hey, cool. Have fun. It's, you know, it's a different thing that you notice. Just pay attention to how we respond to different people's communication and expression. Mm. I love that, yeah. Mother Teresa was like, honesty and transparency make you vulnerable. Be honest and transparent anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Just a couple of speed round questions to finish off. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Ah, I think that's a great question. I think a fulfilled life means wanting what you have. Like really wanting it and and accepting it and, and being at peace and in a place of gratitude about it, whatever it is. And what is one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Ask for support. Look at an area of your life where you really could use some support right now and find someone that you, it may feel a little scary, but reach out and just say, hey, I could use some support. Just the, just the, the practice of asking is incredibly empowering. It takes a lot of courage, but you might be amazed because, <laughs> as I like to say, the answer is always no if you don't ask. So when we're willing to ask, and the thing to think about when you ask, not only might you get some support, but remember how much we all love helping others. So when we make ourselves available for the support from others, we not only get support ourselves, but we give them a gift because they get to then contribute and support us, which most people want to do. Yeah. And it comes here, absolutely. And it's back to that sort of vulnerability, isn't it? Saying, hey, like, I could could need a hand. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any books or resources which have changed or had a big impact on you? I would say 
there's a handful of books over the years that have been really profound in my life. One was a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff by Richard Carlson, who became my mentor and a very dear friend. Sadly, he passed away in 2006. But I love that book and all of those, the book, the books in that series, because Simple Wisdom, my most recent book, Nothing Changes Until You Do, I sort of wrote in a similar style, although I'm a little more long-winded than Richard, so my chapters are a little longer. But, <laughs> but I love that book, both the message and the approach. There's another book that I read around that same time called Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. Absolutely. Had a, had a huge impact on my life. And a third one I would say was, again, probably in that sort of late 90s time when I was kind of in my early to mid-20s, I read a book called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers by Debbie Ford and, um, and then did some work with Debbie and just really embracing the shadow. Those, those three books were really pivotal and profound in my, in my journey, especially early on. Fantastic. And last but not least, how can people stay in touch, find out more about you, your work, and yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. But the best way is just through my website, which is mike-robbins.com. That's M-I-K-E hyphen R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. Mike, this has been such a pleasure talking to you. I've, I've absolutely I've really, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Cool. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate having this conversation. 